In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became, became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, what would you be willing to give your life for? I think most people would say they're willing to give their life for those that they love, um, particularly their family. Uh, there's a unique bond that we have with our families where I think most of us would think unquestioningly that if the opportunity came, I'd be willing to give my life for my family members. What about an ideal like freedom? Would you be willing to give your life to preserve that ideal for a certain right, maybe to bring about political or social change? Would you put your life on the line for that? Would you be willing to risk your life to pursue a certain passion or in pursuit of a thrill? Now, I suppose people who do this or jump out of a plane assume that they're not going to die, but you're certainly increasing the risks, aren't you? Would you be willing to die for your country Australians may not wear their patriotism on their sleeve as much as some, um, but that idea has certainly been a part of our history as well, hasn't it? People willing to give their life for their nation. What about your faith? Would you be willing to die for what you believe? I think most of us will never be put in a situation where we're actually faced with that choice where there's a conscious decision that has to be made to give our life for something. But I think it's a question worth pondering regardless. 
because it's a question that I think reveals something about what we actually value, a question that actually speaks about what we're living for, not just what we're willing to die for. Now, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen uh, the early church growing, as we've just heard, and as a church has grown, so too has the opposition and the hostility towards the believers. And today we see that opposition turn deadly. As Stephen, uh, the man who will become known as the first Christian martyr, has his life taken because of his trust in Jesus. Uh, but before we get to Stephen's story, uh, Acts chapter 6 begins with an account of another little problem that's arisen within the early church. Uh, this new Christian community in Jerusalem, as we saw last week, is not without its problems. Uh, so pick it up there in verse 1 of chapter 6, and we read, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen this remarkable commitment that the early church had for one another. Uh, they were incredibly generous with the things that they had, very willing to share. And in fact, the boast was made that because of this, there were no needy persons among them. But now we see that there is a tension, in fact, in the church. And we don't know how much time has passed exactly from um, those earlier accounts to, to where we are now. Uh, it may have been several years, perhaps. But we see now that there is a tension because it seems like some people are falling through the cracks. It's suggested that there are some widows who are being neglected in favour of others. Now, I don't doubt that this is partly just, uh, as Phil alluded to earlier, part of the growing pains that are experienced in any organisation as it expands. The new church has grown and it's grown fast. Back in chapter 4 we read that there are at least 5,000 men who are a part of the church now. And so by this stage it's safe to assume that there is at least sort of maybe 20 to 30,000 people who are a part of this new community, believers in Jesus. And they've gone from, well, what might have been in the early days, a kind of lean, trendy startup model, um, and now they need to impose a bit of boring bureaucracy, some structure. Uh, that soup kitchen out the back of Peter's place just isn't getting the job done anymore. But it's not just the logistical problem that they've got. This also seems to have a, a racial and a cultural edge to it as well. Because there's something here that has the potential to threaten uh, the, the wonderful unity that we've seen expressed in the early life of the church. See, the accusation is made here that the Greek-speaking Jewish community is being shortchanged. They're being ignored. They're the ones that are described here as the Hellenistic Jews. Uh, that's the word uh, is the the Greek, um, and so it said that their widows are being neglected in favour of the Jewish locals, the Hebrew speakers. Um, see, the Jewish community at the time was not a monochrome thing. It was spread far and wide throughout the Roman Empire, and it, well, this thing you probably heard of it, the thing called the Jewish diaspora. It's still an expression that's used today, in fact, um, but back then it was a reality as well. Uh, that Jews and Jewish communities were spread right throughout the Roman Empire and into Asia as well. Um, cities like Rome and Alexandria had significant Jewish populations. Uh, and some of those Jews who may have grown up in these other places, these Greek-speaking places, had moved back to Israel, moved back to Jerusalem over time. Um, and so they were referred to as the Hellenistic Jews. 
Many of them would have done that for religious convictions, wanting to be closer to the temple. Sometimes they were even more zealous for the traditions of Israel than the locals. And so when the apostles start preaching the good news about Jesus in Jerusalem, the people who come to faith are made up of both of these different backgrounds, these different communities. Those from a Greek background, those from the Jewish background, well, they're all Jews, but uh, different cultural backgrounds. And so it seems like the Hebraic Jews were favouring their own widows when it came to this daily distribution. Um, it doesn't say in the actual Greek text that it's a daily distribution of food. I think that's a, a fair assumption that the NIV makes there. But they may well have been distributing other things as well that people needed. So there's a problem. And so the 12 apostles get together and try and nip this in the bud. Uh, that's verse 2. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters... Choose seven men from among you who were known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles say that it, it wouldn't be right for them to neglect the ministry of the word to devote themselves to this other task of the, the daily distribution of food. And so they propose appointing seven other people of suitable character to take responsibility for that task. Notice there that the criteria for choosing them is not so much about their admin skills as it is about their Christian maturity. There to be people who are full of the spirit, full of wisdom. And we learn later, uh, some of them described as people full of faith too. Uh, so there to be people who are respected for these characteristics and qualities from within their own community. Because notice too that it's not the 12 apostles that choose them, um, they ask the community to nominate from within themselves, to select seven people that they respect and want to turn this responsibility over to. Uh, now, everyone thinks that this is a capital idea, uh, and so the seven are chosen uh, and then endorsed by the apostles, um, and the seven names are listed there. I won't read them all again, except to note that the first two who are mentioned are Stephen and Philip, and we're going to hear more about them over the next few chapters. Now, as far as we can tell, this new system worked because you don't hear any more about this, this issue, this problem regarding the, the widows and the, uh, the kind of the welfare system that they'd put in place. And so we've got Luke's little summary statement there in verse 7 at the end of this section. It says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This potential rift within the community uh, has been mended it seems uh, and the gospel itself continues to be preached the church continues to grow and we even hear that a large number of priests have come to put their faith in Jesus uh, now we don't know if the mention of the priests um, has any particular relevance I suspect Luke throws that in here because uh, I think the, the idea of the priests coming across to the faith as well might have stirred up even more resentment towards the new Christians in Jerusalem um, but it's not explained for us. Uh, now, whatever else you want to say about this little episode at the beginning here of chapter 6, um, I think there are a couple of principles that we can glean from it. Um, clearly, the apostles themselves wanted to prioritise the ministry of the word uh, and prayer, uh, their role in spiritual oversight over the church. 
I don't think you want to build too much from these verses alone. And I don't think this um, episode is here kind of creating these offices of ministers and deacons or uh, committees of management or whatever else you want to call them. Um, but uh, I think there is uh, something that we can glean from the principles that they apply here. Um, the apostles are adamant that they need to prioritise their work, um, how they spend their time. And so it's okay that they acknowledge that they couldn't and they shouldn't try and do everything themselves. It's right and wise that they delegate that responsibility to others. I think it's a good thing for us to remember, uh, particularly for those of us who like to micromanage everything and everyone. Uh, for those of us that have trouble saying no to things, the apostles were happy to let some of this responsibility go, even to the point of trusting the community to nominate the seven people who would take on this role. Um, but it's also true that they're not laying down a structure for the church that's to be, you know, appointed for all time. I think, really, we can see that they're making a lot of this up as they go along. They're being reactive. A problem arose, they came up with a solution to try and sort it out. Uh, so we shouldn't try and read too much into exactly what's going on here in terms of the number of people that are chosen and the specific job that they had. In any case, there's wisdom being exercised here. And it seems effective. Things are looking pretty good, as they have been in the early chapters of Acts. But trouble is brewing. Um, the next thing that we hear about as we read on in chapter 6 is Stephen, one of those seven that was chosen for this job of running the, the welfare system in the church. But when we meet him, we find him doing a bit more than that. I pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 6. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen's introduced to us as being someone who is full of God's grace and God's power. And that power is being expressed as he's performing these great signs and wonders, um, miracles, healing among them, no doubt. Uh, but he's also teaching and debating. I think one of the fascinating things about this little section of Acts from uh, chapter 6 through to chapter 8, which we'll look at next week, is that Stephen and Philip the first two people that we're introduced to as a part of the seven um, are in fact the kind of heroes of the story for this bit of Acts. Uh, the next three chapters, it's these men who come to the fore as the 12 apostles drift into the background. It's these two men who are appointed to wait on tables, to be kind of, uh, that's the language that's used, servants, the waiters. They become the chief protagonists in the story not for dishing out charity, which no doubt they did, but as preachers and as evangelists. Strange in some ways that the apostles are appointing these seven so that they can focus on the ministry of the word, but then Luke deliberately tells two stories about two of those seven, not for their work of waiting on tables, but for how God uses them in evangelism and to preach the gospel. I think the point is 
that whatever formal roles and responsibilities those men had or we might have within a church, it didn't mean for Stephen and Philip that they were restricted from exercising their gifts, from serving the church in other ways. Um, just as I don't doubt that because the apostles wanted to prioritise preaching of the word and prayer, that didn't mean that they never paid anyone a visit or handed out a meal. So Philip, we find him preaching and debating. Uh, and he's winning. He's ruffling feathers. He keeps tallying them up in these arguments. And so his opponents decide to take the low road. Uh, they accuse him of blasphemy, of speaking against the temple, of speaking against the law of God, against the Jewish traditions. Um, and in what's becoming a pretty lazy pattern, I suppose, they drag him off before the Sanhedrin to make their accusations. When Stephen comes before the council, uh, they ask him to defend himself if the accusations are true. And that prompts Stephen to launch into this very long speech that we've got recorded for us in Acts chapter 7. I don't know if you've had a chance uh, to read it prior to today, uh, but it's in fact the longest speech we have recorded in the book of Acts. It's partly a sermon. It's largely a history lesson. Um, it's a defense of the gospel that he's preaching, but it's also a harsh condemnation of the Jewish leaders who are rejecting the good news about Jesus. Stephen concludes that those people are standing in a long line of people who have rejected God's message and God's messengers. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing, um, but if you aren't too familiar with the story of the Old Testament, it's a very clever little potted history of God's dealings with Israel through the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, talks about Abraham, the patriarchs, touches on the story of Joseph and how Israel came into Egypt and then how they got rescued out through Moses during the Exodus, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the construction of the tabernacle and the first temple under David and Solomon. And as he recounts these events, he highlights a couple of things. Firstly, he shows how God has been unfolding this plan throughout history, throughout time, throughout the promises and covenant that he made with his people. But he also wants to show how this plan of God is routinely rejected and frustrated by the Israelites themselves. He highlights this pattern that they have of hard-heartedness and idolatry. And at the end of his speech, Stephen really sinks the boot in. Have a look at verse 51 of chapter 7. Stephen says to the council, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. I don't think Stephen's done his conciliation training. Um, he really uh, doesn't hold back, does he? In fact, it has, well, I don't know if it's a desired effect, but the effect that it has, it makes them so mad, we're told, that they gnashed their teeth at him. I'm not exactly sure how you gnash your teeth, but they're clearly very worked up. But it's what Stephen says next that really tips them over the edge. Uh, God gives him a vision of Jesus seated at the right hand in heaven, 
and he tells them what he sees. Verse 56, he says, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. When Stephen shares his vision that God has given him of Jesus uh, beside the throne, they lose it. They fly into this rage, cover their ears, they scream at the top of their voices so they can't hear another word from him. A little bit like when someone starts talking about the end of a movie that I haven't seen yet. You know, la, la, la. Actually, it's nothing like that at all. They are enraged, so angry, they're ready to kill. And that is what they do. It's a lynching. Violent mob justice. In a way, it shouldn't surprise us. This has been building for a while as we've read the book of Acts. It's a culmination of a growing hostility towards the believers. It starts early with arrests and with intimidation. Last week we saw that ratchet up and as the apostles were flogged. Um, but earlier we've also seen God intervening in rather miraculous ways. He sends the angel of the Lord to open prison cell doors and enable the apostles to keep preaching openly. But there's no such intervention this time. And that shouldn't surprise us either. Because this is in fact exactly what Jesus told his followers they could expect to happen. In John chapter 16, the night before he himself died, Jesus said this to his disciples. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Jesus predicts that these days were coming. But it's still a shocking and a tragic development when it does, isn't it? And it's fair to ask, why would God allow something like this to happen? Things seem to be going so well within the church. He's intervening in so many other ways, in such miraculous ways. His power is at work. Surely he could have prevented it. Well, this may not provide the answer to every one of those questions, but if you're looking for something of an explanation as to what's going on here, it doesn't take very long to read on into chapter 8 to see how God uses this event for the growth of the kingdom. So in Acts chapter 8, immediately after Stephen's death, we read this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. These awful events, in fact, appear to be a catalyst for the gospel going beyond Jerusalem for the very first time. See, when the believers are forced through this persecution to go out to these other areas beyond Jerusalem itself, to the surrounding area of Judea and then beyond to Samaria... They take the message of the gospel with them. It reminds us very much of the program that Jesus set for the apostles right at the very beginning. Acts chapter 1, do you remember it? He told them you'll receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria, there are those two regions, and then to the ends of the earth. And so we see that much like through the death of Jesus himself, God uses this truly evil act, the death of Stephen and the persecution of his people, to spread the message of the gospel, to bring his salvation and his hope and new life to new places and to new people. It's a pattern that repeats throughout the history of the church. It was an early church father named Tertullian who coined a well-known phrase. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He'd seen over a couple of centuries how terrible persecutions of God's people through various Roman emperors and local authorities as they tried to brutally suppress the Christian gospel and the Christians themselves. But he'd seen that through all of that, God continued to grow his church, to bring people to know Jesus despite that, and sometimes it seemed to him because of it. And we've seen that same pattern throughout history, how God has honoured the courage and the suffering of his children to bring about great movements of his spirit, great periods of growth within the church, what we might call these days revival. Now, I don't think we should romanticise the idea of martyrdom, and that does happen within Christian circles too. Nor should we think that this is the only way God can and does grow his church. That's not true either. Um, We shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that persecution is the only way that God can work, that if God's people aren't suffering, then somehow the gospel can't reach people. Nor should we kid ourselves into thinking that persecution is only ever a good thing. It's clearly not. Even in recent history, the, the awful persecution of Christians by ISIS in areas of Syria and Iraq has largely eradicated the presence of Christianity in sections that part of the world. The Japanese emperors were pretty effective at shutting down and shutting out Christianity for 400 years from the 16th century onwards. So we shouldn't be starry-eyed about the realities of persecution. But this story in Acts and the general pattern over the last couple of thousand years shows us that even when things are grim, even when things look hopeless to us, we can know that God is still in control. And very often... He does work through persecution in very miraculous and powerful ways. And so for us, who I think so often feel weak and feel ineffective in a world that seems, well, it seems to have a lot more power than we do, seems to have the more sophisticated answers sometimes, certainly has the majority on their side, it actually reminds us that that's only a part of the picture. Jesus is still on his throne. His kingdom continues to advance. His spirit is still at work powerfully. Never given a guarantee that God's people won't suffer. Never told that you won't face mockery, opposition, or even, as we see here, prison or death. Now, that may be very unlikely in our culture. But one day it may come to that. Or God may call you to go and work in a place where that's a present reality. It's important for us to remember that 
this very day. There are many parts of the world where to take a stand for Jesus will cost you dearly, possibly even your life. Will you stand with your brothers and sisters? Will you support them? Lynn mentioned a couple of organisations in her prayer. Uh, Open Doors, Voice for the Martyrs, uh, that uh, both track uh, and also seek to support the persecuted church around the world. Great organisations that you could support. And will you pray for them, for their courage to endure, for the courage to stand for Jesus even in the midst of that suffering? I think too about what opposition looks like for you. As you contemplate that, take heart. Because know that the reality of what Stephen experienced, how God stands beside him, is a reality and a promise that we can claim as well. Know that whatever circumstances you face, whatever opposition you face, God is with you every step of the way. And just like Stephen was shown that vision in a rather miraculous way of what was awaiting him in the next life, be encouraged by that too. Know that your Heavenly Father is waiting to receive you in the next life, just as he did Stephen. So how about it? Are you willing to take a stand for Jesus? Do you believe that he is someone worth dying for? Are you prepared to show a little courage to own him in your own circles? Perhaps at work, among your friends, at your family get-togethers? Are you prepared to ruffle some feathers, perhaps? Cop some flack? Perhaps even abuse? Are you willing to count the cost of owning Jesus before others? The story of the progress of the gospel is not one of endlessly exciting evangelistic rallies and positive responses. It's marked just as often by opposition and persecutions, and rejection, and sometimes even death. But wherever God's people are, wherever his people take up his mission to be his witnesses in the world, his kingdom grows. So do it with confidence, knowing that God is working out his plan in this world, even as the powers of this world try and shut it down. And do it courageously, knowing that it is often a hard road to walk. But it's one that God will walk with you, and it's one that God will honour.